Well, we begin today part three of our journey through the book of Acts. I don't want to waste any time, so after I tie my shoe, we're going to begin. Then they returned to Jerusalem. So they, they just witnessed Jesus' ascension up into the heavens. So then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. The mount called Olivet, this would have been the Mount of Olives. This would have been across the valley to the east. Really more of a hill than an actual mountain, about 400 feet above the floor of the Kidron Valley which technically it's only about 200 feet higher than Jerusalem itself. But this was the scene. This is where the ascension took place near the little village of, of Bethany. And it notes that it was a Sabbath day journey. This was the longest distance that one could walk without breaking the Sabbath. The rabbinic tradition set this at 2,000 cubits, about three quarters of a mile. And the distance derives, according to tradition, from Israel's encampment, during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. The farthest the tents were held to have been were about 2,000 cubits from the tabernacle. But this actually isn't specified in Scripture. But since work was prohibited on the Sabbath, the farthest anyone would need to travel was 2,000 cubits to the tabernacle to worship. And so consequently, that's where we get the idea of a Sabbath day journey. It became synonymous with 2,000 cubits, three quarters of a mile. And then it says in verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So they're going up to this upper room. And it certainly is tempting, I think, to maybe see this as the same upper room where they had the Last Supper. But... It's nowhere certain at all in Scripture. In fact, Luke uses a different word for that room in Luke 22.11 than the one he's using here in Acts 1.13. But they're going to this upper room, which what we probably can surmise is that in Palestine, these, these rooms would have been most likely on the, the third floor, and you would have access to it through exterior stairwell, so you'd have to actually go outside to go back up onto the top of the roof. And they'd be used as dining rooms or places uh, to study, or they'd even be rented out to other people. But this is where they're staying. It's going to be obviously a pretty large house. I say obviously because we'll see in just a few verses. It's big enough to accommodate 120 people, so probably somewhat large. And so they're all gathered there, and it says, All these, verse 14, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The women would have certainly included here in this story the apostles and also the women who accompanied Jesus from Galilee who had witnessed his crucifixion. But it also notes Jesus' brothers. And despite what the Catholic Church teaches, the Bible's pretty clear that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we not only learn that Jesus had four brothers, but we learn their names. James, Judas, Joseph, and Simon there in Mark 6, 3. These would have been Jesus' half-brothers. That's how we would understand Mark's words. They would have been his half-brothers, the natural offspring of Mary and Joseph after Jesus' birth. But notice what's happening here in verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. 
with one accord or, or one mind. And the expression here, the, the, really I think the focal point of verse 14 is showing the spiritual unity that characterizes this gathering, that characterizes this fellowship and, and the focus of prayer. They're, they're continually devoting themselves. This is a, a strong expression showing this persistence in prayer. One of the reasons I love like our midweek gatherings, I'm always like, you guys come to midweek gatherings, is because I think this is really reflected well in verse 14. We, get, we really get that opportunity to do verse 14, and we should do verse 14. It's just a really beautiful picture of this early church gathered together, being unified of one mind, of one accord, and they're just praying, right? They're, they're praying for each other, and we just see, I think, that their love for one another, which is just beautiful, because I think you go to a lot of churches today, and you just don't see that. But it is very much evident here. Well, then, here comes the transition, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. In those days, it's going to mark the transition to this new section. So here's the, the real order of business. Like, all right, Peter, what's going on? And obviously that the big elephant in the room is there was this guy named Judas who was with us, and he's not here anymore. We've got to talk about that, right? And so they're all gathered, 120 of them, which I thought was interesting because in, uh, in rabbinic tradition, 120 was the minimum required for a Sanhedrin. Um, though I don't know that this has any extra spiritual significance. I just thought that was cool. So they're gathered there. And he is ready to tell them some really important things. And verse 16, verse 16, I think, is really going to pop. All these verses are great verses. I really love verse 16. This week in preparing the sermon, it just really encouraged my heart. And so we're going to spend a lot of time hovering over this, unpacking this. He says, brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 16. The scripture had to be fulfilled. Had to be. And I I see this, and it makes me think, as, as I'm like, all right, wow, what, what are the implications of that? It had to be fulfilled. And what I take away is when I, when I hear what Peter's words are saying here is that when the Holy Spirit says something, it's going to happen. When the Holy Spirit speaks, you take that to the bank. It's, it's as good as done. It may take a thousand years. It's okay. That's all right. It's going to happen. And so in verse 16, when you see the scriptures had to be fulfilled, what you see here is the invincible purpose of God. You see this invincible purpose most clearly captured in the words it had to be. The scripture had to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit spoke. But then again, then again, how can... How can Peter say it had to be? Like, why did it have to be? Because isn't life full of contingencies? Isn't the future open-ended? 
Aren't people free to make of life whatever they want? So that even God has to adjust his plans. So how can you say, it had to be? And I think there's only one answer. Either, either Peter misspoke, either Peter was wrong, and you've got to decide for yourself who you're going to believe, the skeptics or the apostles, or either he's wrong, or the purpose of the Holy Spirit expressed in Scripture as it said, it had to be fulfilled, is invincible, unconquerable, indomitable, supreme, and omnipotent. And, uh, Obviously, you probably know what position I'm going to take here. The biblical one. I'm, I'm going to go with Peter here. But the problem for some of us is that we don't like the sound of that. See, we would rather place our confidence in us and believe that we can freely make of life whatever we want so that even God has to adjust his plans for us. And that's just pride. It is. So so when we when we come across verse 16 and it says, had to be fulfilled, like it's gonna happen no matter what. Doesn't always set right with us. And yet I'm, I'm here to say that it, it should. It doesn't always, but it should. It, see, it should encourage our hearts to know that when when you experience a time of crisis, when you experience a time of crisis and danger, especially in a situation which you're being betrayed, because that's the immediate context there, remember? They're talking about Judas, he's just betrayed them. In those moments, you're going to want to see that God is in the driver's seat. In those moments, you will. You'll want to see that his purpose, the purpose of God, is not crumbling, that it holds fast, that it isn't altered, or that God now has to adjust his plans because of yours or some evil person who just hurt you or betrayed you, whose sole purpose, oh, by the way, is just wicked. I'm so thankful for the invincible purpose of God's plan, both in Scripture and in your individual lives. Because if I'm being honest, which I should be, like the disciples, like you, I, I get worried. And it is of the utmost reassurance to know that he doesn't. He's not worried. Regardless of what's happening in the world. Coronavirus and are we going to make it to the end of the week? Some of you are like, coronavirus? I've got exams this week, right? It's like, I give me coronavirus so I can skip the exams. Like, you know, that's got to be an excused absence. You're worried. He's not worried. There's no panic in his face. We're panicked. He's not. He's spoken, and it has to be. And some of you may remember our previous small group verses, which capture the invincibility of God. Like Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's good news. 
Or Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts is purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who's going who's gonna to turn back his hand? No one's could turn back his hand. And so then the, the question becomes, well, why, why use this tragic story of Judas to illustrate the invincible purpose of the Holy Spirit? You could use a different story. And I think the reason is, is that it's not hard to believe God's purposes are invincible when things go well for you. That's, that's I think, one of the reasons, right? It's not hard to believe that God's purposes are invincible when things are going well, when everything's going right. But when things go bad, when there is lying, when there is mistrust and betrayal and death, then you need all the help you can get in those moments to believe that the purposes of God are rock solid and invincible. And that's what Luke is doing for us. He's essentially saying, like, not even Judas, not even Satan could undermine or escape the invincibility of God's purposes. And that will help you sleep at night when you've been hurt by people you care about, when you've been betrayed, when you've been lied to. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 12, he prays like this. While I was with them, so Jesus is praying to the Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction the scripture might be fulfilled. He prays it in his high priestly prayer. Now can you imagine for a moment, can you imagine Jesus praying a different type of prayer? One that went along the lines of this. Father, I have guarded all of them. I've guarded my own and I only lost one. I can't account for it, Father. Can't account for his treachery, his betrayal. It's just totally out of control. It's like a wild cannon, totally unpredictable. Quite frankly, there's no explaining it. I think it's just a glitch. Can you, can you imagine him giving that prayer? <laughs> like, I'm so thankful that's not his prayer. I'm so thankful that he is the invincible God who sovereignly governs all things according to his purpose and his will. As Ephesians 1:11 reminds us, I'm so thankful that he's never puzzled. He's never worried. And when we look to God, we see exactly what we need to see. The confidence of an invincible purpose. Judas's betrayal was crucial to the plan of the sovereign God who predicted it in the Old Testament. In fact, here's Peter, right? And he's referring to all this. He's standing. Remember, back to what's happening. Peter's there. He's standing in front of 120 people at this house. And he is saying and referring to the scripture that the Holy Spirit inspired through David. That is, the Holy Spirit spoke. He is making it undeniably clear that this was the invincible plan and purpose of God. That Judas's betrayal was not a glitch in the system. Like, there, there could be no, by the way, no clear description of inspiration found anywhere in scripture. I mean, right here, it's very clear. Except maybe, maybe 2 Peter 1.21. In 2 Peter 1.21, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, 
These are not the words of man. They are the words of God. And you can therefore trust them, Christian. You can depend upon them. And my guess is, when people are lying and backstabbing and betraying, you need something that you can depend on. You need something that you can trust since you can't any longer with those Judas-like people. That's why he's standing up here saying all of this, because they've been betrayed by one of their own. And he's saying, well, hold on a second. This was done, right, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Scripture told that this was going to happen, guys. It threw us off. Didn't see that coming. He saw it coming. Verse 17, it says, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Peter reminds them Judas was one of them. And so a question that naturally comes up, people say, was Judas saved? Did Judas get saved? And I think my short answer is, is no. Why? Because the Bible, like, this is what Jesus says. John chapter 6, 64 and 65, and then 70 and 71. This is why I say, no, no, I don't, don't think he ever was. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's what Jesus says, not Joe. That's that's no interpretation right there. I'm just reading the verse. And then in verse 71 he says, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so then the question becomes this, well, then why would Jesus choose him? Why would he choose him to be one of the twelve? If he's aware, here in John 6, of who he is, why would he choose him? The short answer is is Judas was placed among the apostles because it was essential for him to betray Jesus. And when I say that, you're like, whoa, what do you mean it was essential? Let me be clear. God did not force Judas into that betrayal. And this is where there's a mystery, right, between God's sovereignty and human responsibility because sometimes we'll be like, man, this kind of sucks for Judas, right? At no point did this happen in the story, right? Judas, someone like duct tapes his hand to the gun and forces him to pull the trigger. And he's saying, I don't want to pull the trigger, right? I don't want to shoot Jesus. I don't want to betray him. Ah, don't do it. You're making me do that, right? That didn't happen. Just so we're clear. Instead, God used Judas's evil intent to accomplish his own, God's own, predetermined purposes. And, and I get... It's hard to wrap our minds around. But that's what the Scripture says. And as we've already acknowledged today, Scripture's legit. It's trustworthy. You're like, that's hard. I'm wrapping my mind around all this is hard. I know, I know. It was hard for them. That's why Peter's coming. He's like, you can trust Scripture. Okay? That's what the Bible says. So we want to believe it, right? He's saying, essentially, it's not man-made. 
That's what verse 16 was about. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Therefore, we can depend and trust what the Bible says, even if we have a hard time making sense of it. But the real tragedy in this story, I think, you've got to acknowledge this is the life of Judas. Judas represents one of the greatest examples of a wasted life. Judas represents one of the greatest examples of wasted opportunity. Here's a guy who has the rare privilege given to 12, 12 men of living and ministering with Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh for more than three years. Like, he had the same convicting, overwhelming opportunity to come to faith as the others had. And Judas, no doubt, when I, when I try to like, you know, maybe sketch out this guy, Judas, I'm sure that he shared in the common Jewish hope that Messiah would one day deliver the nation from the Romans. And probably when it became clear that that wasn't Jesus' plan, that he wasn't going to get the wealth and the power that he wanted, well, he just decides to cut his losses and get out with whatever he could salvage. And this greed and selfishness of Judas is previewed in John chapter 12, verse 5. You might remember the story when Jesus is anointed by Mary with a costly perfume, and then he indignantly says in John 12, 5, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And, of course, his real concern was evident from John's editorial comment in the next verse, in John 12, 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So here is a man driven by disappointment, driven by greed, the most tragic of stories, who squanders the highest privilege and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and damns his soul to hell. There's so many people today who claim the name of Christ who just waste their lives. Like, whether we waste the opportunity to be fully vested in a part of the local church, which, I'll be honest, it's usually one of the biggest ones I see, and, and definitely something I was guilty of at one point in my life, where we waste opportunities to witness to others, or invite, or call people to come and follow Jesus. It happens. I'm a Christian. I'm just here to, like, remind you, like, you've, you've got one life. Don't waste it. Make it count for, for something of eternal significance. But, but understand this, Judas is not the only example of a wasted life. He's just the greatest example. Don't waste your life. Like if we're taking anything from the story of Judas, it's that. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life. Don't waste the opportunities that God has given you to advance the kingdom of heaven. And I regularly hear people tell me this. Regularly. I said, Joe, I was in Lynchburg for this many years, and it wasn't until my last 12 or even last six months, my last few months, that I really, that I really felt that I began to live on mission for Jesus as his witnesses and, and prioritize God and his people, the church, the way I should have from the onset. I hear that all the time. Man, I, man, I wish I had like three more years here. Because I really only feel like the last, maybe last couple months, I've really, it's just all come together. So many 
of us waste so many opportunities. And Judas, this, this point right here in the story, I think it serves. It serves as that notice, right? Don't do it. And um, the world is going to try to suck you in with so many different distractions, and many of them not even bad distractions, to get you off focus from loving Jesus and serving Jesus and, and loving his people well, the church, and making disciples and being his witnesses. Please don't waste it. Please learn from others. Learn from myself and many of my early years spent here. Learn from Judas. Perhaps the greatest tragedy in all of Scripture is the life of Judas. Now this man acquired Judas, verse 18. Now this man, speaking of Judas, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Ekeldama, that is the field of blood. So he puts in this parenthetical statement for Theophilus. Remember, he's writing this letter to Theophilus for his benefit as well as ours. And he describes the scene. And of course, Judas didn't actually purchase the field in question, but because it was purchased with the money that was paid to him by the Jewish leaders, Luke just shortens it and says, refers to him as the buyer. But the picture is of a fault so severe that it rips open his his body and causes his internal organs to just spill out. It's a gruesome scene. And for his Jewish readers, Luke translates the Aramaic word. He simply calls it the field of blood, though Matthew does give a fuller account of his death. I, I just had a friend a few weeks ago um, ask me about this, and he pointed out the two versions of this story of Judas's death. He said, well, how exactly did he die? Did he hang himself or did he suffer this fall? And it kind of becomes a little bit confusing, so I just want to clarify that. Matthew records that he hung himself in chapter 20, verse 5 of Matthew. Whereas Luke here, he records that the falling headlong and bursting open here in Acts. And what Luke's account does is Luke's account is going to supplement Matthew's. Not contradict it, supplement it. So evidently what took place is this. Judas chose to hang himself on a tree that overlooked a cliff. And either the rope or the branch broke or the knot failed to hold under the weight of his body, then plunging to a gruesome death on the rocks below. That's when we put these two accounts together. They're not, they don't contradict each other. They just supplement each other. And the traditional site for this field is south of Jerusalem in the Valley of Hinnom, near its intersection with the Kidron Valley. Because the soil there is suitable for the use of pottery, Matthew often refers to it as the potter's field. But here's Judas, right? A man who, at this point, is suffering severe guilt to be driven to this, to this level of despair. He, I mean, to, to get to that point where you just want to end it, that's, that's where he's at. And I say he's, he's feeling unbearable guilt, and I say even remorse, but not true genuine repentance for his betrayal of Jesus. Yes, he returns the money to the Jewish authorities. And the end of this story, it makes me think of 2 Corinthians 7.10. because, And this verse, I think, is very helpful in distinguishing what Judas felt from what Christians feel. 
In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's possible for people like Judas and other people who are not Christians to experience regret. Man, I wish I hadn't have done that. I really wish I didn't betray him. I really wish I didn't cheat him, lie, steal, kill, murder, whatever, right? People who are non-Christians can feel bad. They're like, ah, it's shucks, right? And I put that lightly. They, they can feel these real emotions. I think it's captured here in the life of Judas. The big difference is, and here's 2 Corinthians 7.10, it helps us, is how do we differentiate this? Well, worldly grief produces death. So there's worldly grief and there's godly grief. Godly grief produces repentance. You say, man, I wonder, I wonder which type of grief I'm experiencing. Is the grief, is your remorse that you're feeling, does it drive you toward the cross? Does it drive you into the arms of the Father? Or is it, eh, whatever, business as usual. That's the difference, according to 2 Corinthians 7.10. And that's the difference here for Judas. And so, remember again what's happening in this story. Peter is standing up, and he's preaching, and he is using the most compelling proof, Scripture, to reassure his hearers that Judas's defection and their choice of his replacement, they're part of God's plan. And, and this is real reassurance for people who've just witnessed someone they were so close to who hurt and betrayed them. This is real reassurance. And so Peter's going to quote from Psalm 69.25 and 109.8 and then interpret those texts for us, speaking about Judas. Essentially he's saying, this caught us by surprise, guys. It didn't catch God by surprise. Of course, that's what verse 16 is all about. The invincible purpose of God that can't be stopped or undone. And so he says this, He's quoting the Psalms and applying them specifically to Judas. Verse 20, For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So here's the business at hand, right? A little, little brief explanation for everything that's happened with Judas and how he interprets it in light of the sovereignty of God. And oh, by the way, we need to replace him. We need to replace him. That's, that's how he interprets the Psalms for us. So one of the men, verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Here's the criteria for his replacement. And this gets into our conversation of today of modern day apostles. They got to replace Judas. Okay? What's the criteria? Well, we just read it, verse 21. Someone who had accompanied us during the time of the Lord Jesus, who went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism until the time of his ascension, and, oh, by the way, who witnessed the resurrection. Okay, that's the criteria. And so people will ask me, like, do you believe in modern-day apostles? And I say, oh, absolutely, I believe in modern-day apostles. Because so people say, oh, yeah, I went to this church and there was an apostle there. I was like, well, that's cool. I hope that all the people in the church would be apostles, since the word means sent out or messenger or envoy. 
right? But that's usually not how they usually like, whoa, look at this. Like, this person, this apostle speaking before us. And I'm like, oh, I don't think we're using the word correctly, right? And, and so I differentiate like, like this. So we got big A apostles. What are big A apostles? It's these guys. These guys are big A apostles, right? These guys have that, like, that authoritative, and, and why? What's the criteria? Well, according to verse 21 and 22, the, the criteria is they witnessed the mission of Jesus from the time of John's baptism, right? Until the time of his ascension, and they personally witnessed his resurrection. And since none of us today lived back then, we don't meet that criteria. So that's why I say, oh, well, no, in that sense, no, I don't believe in big A apostles any longer. Do I believe in little A apostles? Sure. Who is that? All of us who are Christians, right? We are all those who are sent out. We are all his envoys, his messengers, his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So, yeah. But that's the criteria that he gives. And I always think that's, it's helpful to explain that because there are certain denominations who mention apostles. And I'm like, yeah, that's not biblical. But, you know, we'll, we'll let it go because um, they're not in this church. But I want you to understand that. Someone says, oh, oh, you're an apostle? Oh, so tell me, which one of these criteria in Acts chapter 1, 21 to 22 do you meet? That's right, because you weren't actually alive back during that time. So you don't meet any of them. I find it helpful. Um, but this is what I want us to do, right? I want us to think biblically, like the Bereans. What does the Bible say? Nah, the Bible doesn't say that's okay, so it must not be okay. But he goes on to say this, verse 23, And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, here they are praying again, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Sometimes this is kind of confusing, the whole thing about casting lots, so I figured we should probably talk about that. Because it almost seems like they're literally leaving this up to chance, like they're casting lots, they're throwing dice to determine who's going to replace Judas. Like that's kind of a big decision. Why would you leave it up to chance? But the problem is, is our understanding of chance is not their understanding of chance. These are people who both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they don't exactly buy into chance the way we buy into chance. Um, because both in the Old and the New, believers of God understand the outcome was always seen to be determined by God. Right? That takes the pressure off of us a little bit. I mean, this is what Proverbs 16.33 says. I think we got that on the screen, right? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Your translation might say the lot or the die or dice. But that's their mindset, right? That's the mindset of the believers in the Old and New Testament. Not our mi mindset. So this seems like just random chance. But the point of this verse is essentially saying, guys... Yes, there's such thing as randomness and, and chance to us, but not to God. There's no such thing as random or chance to God, right? That's, that's what Proverbs 16, is saying. There is to us, right, as far as our minds can understand it, but not to God. And that's how they would have understood it. So them essentially like rolling the dice to see who's going to replace Jesus, it's not like cavalier. It's not like, eh, whatever, right? They're just sitting around, hanging out. We'll just roll the dice and see what happens. The method here was one likely depicted in the Old Testament, like in 1 Chronicles 26, 13, where they would have marked stones placed in a jar, and then they would, it would be shaken, and they dropped drop them out. And 
the one whose stone fell out first, they'd be chosen. And so after praying, they drew lots for them, which, once again, I want to point out, this is an Old Testament, accepted Old Testament method for determining God's will, but it's also worth noting that this is the last occurrence anywhere in Scripture of this practice since the coming of the Holy Spirit renders it unnecessary. And I want to point that out because people have brought that up. Well, can we do that today? You can. But remember, they are waiting for this baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? And I think that's why this is the last time it happens. The rest of the time, they exercise prayerful spiritual discernment when they make their decisions. They exercise prayerful spiritual discernment. All the decisions when they make in choosing leaders from here on out. And so with Matthias's selection to replace the traitor Judas, the final preparation for the church was completed. But we're not done because I skimmed over the part back in verse 22. Throw verse 22 back up on the screen, please. And you might have seen this too. It caught my eye. So he's giving the criteria. And what does he say at the end of verse 22? One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. I don't know if that caught your eye. Caught my eye a little bit. And so remember, they're they're replacing him. Who who are they going to replace? And on that issue, on on that role of uh, apostolic succession, since some churches practice like having these positions of apostles today, not in the little a sense, we're all apostles, but in the big a sense, I simply want to point out that James was not replaced after his martyrdom. Okay? For those who might make that argument, oh, well, we need, you know, there's apostolic succession. James wasn't replaced. You see, it was necessary to replace Judas because he had abandoned his position. It was his betrayal, not his death, that forfeited his position. Because even after James dies, in chapter 12, verse 2, he's still considered to be an apostle. But what 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 does he say here? And this is what stood out to me. He must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Must become with us. And it stood out to me because back in verse 16 it says, had to be fulfilled. Like, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so I asked the question, why does this matter? Like, why is this crucial? Why is this crucial in the purpose of the Holy Spirit? And I believe the reason is this. The baptism with the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about this whole time, the last few weeks, this receiving extraordinary power for God-ordained, Christ-exalting ministry, it wasn't meant to send the apostles into this spiritual high that at that point they were then disconnected from the person of Jesus that they had known on the earth for three years. And so what this does is it gives us balance balance to what we've been seeing. It shows us the need for this extraordinary power cannot be disconnected from the teaching and the work of Jesus. See, they they could have easily said, we don't need Matthias to replace him. We don't need anybody else. We've got the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming. We've got power from on high. We're all good. Which, ironically tends to happen in in many churches where they prioritize this personal experience, this power of the Spirit over the Bible to where they say, who needs the Bible? we got the power of the Holy Spirit here. I've had people tell me that, right? And if they haven't said it, they basically say it without using words, right? 
I've gone to some churches where literally like, we never open this book, not a once, during the whole service. So balance, balance is important. Because you can go too far to the extreme, be like, we got the Holy Spirit here. Bible, well, we don't need that. And I think that's exactly what this text does for us. That's what it does. The addition of Matthias helps to preserve the memory and the story of Jesus. And this is important because in making disciples, and we all want to make disciples, at the core is teaching and retelling and speaking everything that Jesus said and spoke. Like, we don't throw all of that out because, oh, wow, we've got the extraordinary power for God-ordained Christ-exalting ministry through this fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. We don't just throw everything out. So, therefore, if we do not have a high view of the words and deeds of Jesus, and just remember the opening verse of Acts. If we don't have a high view of the words and deeds of Jesus preserved for us by the apostles, we run the risk of following in the error of Judas. And it's scary. It's scary to think of somebody that was with him for three years, right? It's scary to think about somebody who, right, they're, they're with us a small group, like month after month, or they come in this room week after week after week, and to think that, like, that could be them. And being here for almost seven years, I've seen that. And it just, it just kills me. It just kills me. I mean, there's a guy, a former LCC guy called me up. He calls me up a lot. Um, his name's David Elliott. David, if you're listening, big shout out to you right now. And he just said, Joe, I'm just, he's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling because I think this guy, this, it's like, I don't think he's a Christian. This guy that we've known for like several years. He's like, I look at like his social media. I, I see everything he taught. I don't think he's a Christian, man. And I, I think it's worth mentioning at this point. I think it's worth noting that the connection today with what has been called these deconversions within the church to those same churches. I think the connection is with those same churches. The common denominator is, is it a lack of emphasis on the doctrine and the words of God. And this, that seems to be a, a big common denominator in, in these deconversions today. However, I will say this, the Christian life is more than knowing right things about Christ. Even the demons believe, right? So the Christian life is more than knowing right things about Christ, but it's not less. It's not less than that. Like we need to know right things about Christ. And so by adding Matthias, I believe it was there to create this balance to aid to the preservation of the very words of Christ, not to mention to fulfill and obey Scripture, because he already quoted from the Psalms, talking about another one coming and replacing him. That's why he's chosen in the first place. That's why Peter's been saying this all along. And of course, his words are fundamentally essential to our witness. And after all, when we witness... We witness, as the opening verse of the book of Acts says, all the things that Jesus did and taught. And so my prayer today is that we don't forget that. That we don't forget all the things that Jesus did and taught. That's important, right? Praise God for like the fresh baptism and empowering of the Holy Spirit for God-ordained Christ-exalting ministry. But oh, oh, how precious are these words. 
These are the words of the living God. We can't forget that. God, we love you, and we need you, and I pray that we would not forget it, that we would be your witnesses wherever we go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Oh, that we would be your witnesses here in Lynchburg, Lord. Oh, Lord, that you would preserve us and that we would walk faithfully on the path set before us. God, God, I pray that you would help us, Jesus. The Christian life is a difficult one, and we need your help, Lord. But, Lord, we praise you that you are the invincible God, that your purposes cannot be stopped or altered by Judas, by Satan himself. And, Lord, I, I pray that that would encourage our faith. That would encourage our hearts knowing these truths. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.